0: I'm Roger Mullen. I'm here with my business and political colleague, Michelle Thompson. We run a, a company called Momentous Change, who originally sponsored one of these events about a week or so back for Stephen. And we were both, of course, colleagues of Stephen in Westminster. Uh, I've had a long-standing interest in international matters, international affairs, uh, before being... And MP, I think I undertook around 29 international assignments for different United Nations agencies, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, from places such as the, the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific to, to the Yemen in the Middle East, to Namibia and Africa, and lots of other places. So I was obviously intrigued when Stephen... He set about to produce his book and he kindly interviewed me as part of that and read some of the work that Michelle and myself uh, undertook. Now, basically, Stephen's new book, Nation to Nation, which I know some of you will have read already, Scotland's Place in the World, in my view, couldn't have chosen a better time for its publication, not least because as we face an unwanted Brexit and we face global challenges on multiple fronts. And indeed, Dr. Taylor St. John of St. Andrew's University, in writing about Stephen's book, said, if you're curious about Scotland's role in the world, what it is today and what it could be in the future, then this engaging, informative book is what you need. This book reflects and challenges us all to think about a Scottish foreign policy, whether we achieve independence or whether we remain in the UK. And as Stephen argues, Scotland, like other medium-sized and small states, has had to work harder on its international links, as it is unable to rely on military might or economic domination. And therefore, the the book, to me, reflects both historical as well as contemporary analysis, with a combination of Stephen's personal experiences and practical, as well as academic insights. And I'm sure many of you will find the first of the seven chapters weaves a very convincing tale of how for many centuries, Scotland has sought international engagement, both by sharing with and borrowing experiences from the international community, There are many points of reference in Stephen's book with which I was familiar, although he's put them together uh, rather beautifully, I think. But there were also many points he made which were entirely new to me. Uh, And I was particularly intrigued by the speech that General de Gaulle made in Scotland in 1942, for example. So if, like me, you want to consider our place in the world as a future independent country, I think you will find this book challenging in parts, reassuring in others, but I'm sure you will find it always thought-provoking. So, Stephen, I'd like to invite you to give us your opening remarks.
1: Lovely, thank you, Roger, and and look, and thanks for to you and Michelle and everybody else for arranging this, and and, and to everybody for giving up their evening to, to come along, um, and. And uh, talk about the book tonight. Here it is, nation to nation. I've got hard copies now, which is all very exciting. I've never written a book before, um, and and actually, I have to say that tonight's the night that I, that, that that's that's mildly terrifying to do because, um, unlike when I was doing a lot of the events a couple of weeks ago, when we did our first event, Roger, uh, people haven't received the book yet. Now they have received the book, um, and one thing <laughs> that I that I encourage people to do is. Um, is the reason I've written the book fundamentally is, as Roger said, Scotland and its place in the world, Scotland's foreign policy footprint could not be more important to our debate about Scotland's constitutional future. And I encourage people to talk about that. And and, and I have said in the book that if all people do is to sit and criticise the book, then at least I've achieved something because at least we're talking about it. This is about opening up a debate. But I would discourage you from... Um, from uh, criticising it too much, but um, you're always very welcome to say whatever you feel. So the reason, as I think, as Roger's um, set out, why did I write this book? Well, I wrote this book because Scotland's foreign policy footprint, Scotland's role in the world, goes to the very heart of the debate that we've got at the moment about our future. And this is nothing that's new. So in the first chapter, as Roger says, I look at history. And throughout history, Scotland's um, domestic politics, our day-to-day lives are heavily influenced by our foreign policy and our role in the international community. No more so than now, um, but I'll come on to that in a moment. The first thing that William Wallace did in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Stirling Bridge, even if you go back centuries, was and the only bit of writing that we know he produced is something called the Letter of Lubeck, which was a letter written from him as Guardian of Scotland. Um, to the Hanseatic League, the EU of its day, um, to say Scotland was once again open for business. Similarly, Robert the Bruce in the Declaration of Our Broth, that was a letter to the Pope described as the UN of its day. And if you look at the, the centuries that went on afterwards, Scotland's independence came to an end in 1707, in part because of a misjudged foreign policy venture in the Darien scheme as well. And over the past few years with Devolution, you've seen our foreign policy footprint, our international branding develop. And now we're at a crossroads in terms of Scotland's future um, because of the vote on Brexit, which is driving a lot of the support. According to John Curtis, one in five no voters have now switched to yes as a direct response to Brexit. So we see our, our, our relationship with our, with our friends and neighbours, not just in these islands, but beyond really driving politics in our own country. And similarly, Scotland's relationship elsewhere driving politics elsewhere, and we see that with the diaspora and the impact that it's had, um, not just in the Commonwealth, but also elsewhere in Europe too. So the way I conducted my research was I knew I carried out 50 or 60 interviews with people I knew, people like Roger and Michelle, who've done some fantastic work on the diaspora, but I also interviewed politicians, diplomats, and other stakeholders from other countries in Europe and North America, including um, people who have now become senior members of Joe Biden's team, Canadian parliamentarians, former senators, and others, as well as European parliamentarians, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, you know, Nordic cabinet ministers, and, and others to get their thoughts. I was also really keen, I think this is really important for us as pro-independence campaigners, to understand the other side so i was really pleased that so many people from um the unionist side if you like spoke to me so i spoke to both former labor first ministers former conservative ministers brexiteer campaigners because what i wanted to do is although i come from a particular perspective like pretty much everybody on this call i always think in politics it is a critical and um critical to understand what the others are saying and to try and give and i've tried to provide some kind of balance in my analysis. And I broke it down into looking at history and diaspora, how we operate as a sub-state actor, because we're a sub-state actor at the moment, how that compares to others. And you see the very strong foreign policy powers of the Faroese, the Danes, the Flemish, the Quebecers, the Bavarians have got compared to, to Scotland. I also looked at the High North, because remember, as, as I I've mentioned before, there is no right way up to look at a globe. And if you look at a globe, yes, our relationship with others in these islands are really important. and have always historically been really important. So to our relations with the Icelandic, the Faroes, the Norwegians, the Danes and others, where we've had a really strong historic relationship in terms of commerce, politics, culture, migration, all these other areas. And then I looked at some of the areas where there's been a divergence between Holyrood and Westminster. And you see that in areas with climate change and the way that that's been taken on, which is an international issue. Um, I spoke to one of my colleagues. I'm currently a professor at the School of International Relations at the University of St Andrews and our head of school, Professor Karen Gentry, has done some fantastic work on a feminist foreign policy. And she thinks that fits beautifully with the way that Scotland's positioning itself the way that Scotland could potentially and already has been a hub for conflict resolution and a different role for itself in the world. Because remember, with Scotland, we are not a mini UK, we're Scotland. We're not Norway, we're not Ireland, we're not England, although we can draw, we can draw lessons from all of them, we're Scotland. Um, and finally, there was also the issue on that divergence of Brexit. And what I found was that increasingly people in Scotland see themselves as being part of a multilateral world where your membership of international organisations have the pooling and sharing of sovereignty, but with independence sitting in your um, in your state. And actually, it's interesting, if you look at the Irish, the Danes, the Finns, the Baltic states, they see this as underpinning and strengthening their independence with their membership of the EU and other international organisations. Um, and I think there are... There are challenges for us. So let me, I think there are challenges for the union when you have to be into your 60s before you're in a a, a demography who believes in the union. But let's talk about the challenges for those of us who are in favour of independence. And we've got challenges about our relationship with the other countries of the UK. And we also need to be debating this now because, and I'm going to finish here before we move into the discussion, I wanted to keep this as sharp as possible. Um, I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. Um, Professor Malcolm Chammers, who's the Deputy Director of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, a big think tank in London, he's a unionist Scot, believes in the union, will vote no in the referendum. But he gave me a really interesting um, insight to some things why we need to be debating and discussing this now. He said that, look, if Scotland goes independent, and I'll vote against it, he told me, I want Scotland as an independent country, if it vote yes to be as successful as it possibly can be as a Scot. And he said for that to happen you need to be as ready as you possibly can be on on day one of independence. And that means, uh, because the decisions that we make on day one of independence will have an impact for decades to come. Those early decisions early on shape the nation in a way that later decisions might not. We don't get, sort of Nick the shampoo commercial, we don't get a second chance for for a first impression. So that's why it's really important to start shaping this now and also why international affairs sits at the very heart of our foreign policy with that divergence between a multilateralist Scotland and a UK sitting outside the EU that's increasingly pursuing a unilateralist agenda which is at odds with all of its neighbours. Thanks, Roger.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm going to start by asking my colleague Michelle to get the the questions going by uh, asking an initial question. So over to you, Michelle.
2: Thank you, Roger. Hi, Stephen. Uh, Here we are again. Uh, And I think it will be uh, an altogether different discussion tonight, as you comment, since people have had the chance to read the book. So my question this evening is not necessarily about the book, but a sentiment you express within the book. Uh, where you referenced the, the Scottish Government's ambitious Climate Change Act of 2009, and you note that Civic Scotland and cross-party support saw it seize the day and, of course, be considerably more ambitious than the equivalent that was passed in, in Westminster. And when we talked about this before, I'm interested um, how it shapes our thinking in scotland when we look without how without can be reflected within and a personal view. i worry a wee bit that the the scottish parliament as it's been recently has in some areas been less ambitious than it was previously in looking out and leading the world so it's something you touch on in the book but i'd appreciate your your views
1: thanks michelle um yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, and you're right, it's terrifying now that people have had the chance to read it because sort of warts and all in the bits that, that, that you wish you'd done better because um, there are always plenty of bits. Um, so on the Climate Change Act, um, so this, I mean, for, for, for those who haven't had the chance to read it, um, in 2009, Scotland passed the Climate Change Act, which at its time was world-leading. And at the time, Scotland was gaining plaudits throughout the world. You know, President Nasheed of the Maldives, Arnold Schwarzenegger and and, and, and others were were sort of passing on accolades to Scotland. And the UK government refused to let Scotland be part of the climate change negotiations because it's a member of the UN. So Scotland just ran its own show. What was interesting, there were a few things, a few lessons to be taken from that. One was that within the Scottish Parliament, it was a minority government at the time. And even though you've got very different views and entrenched views, by building a coalition across parties, you were able to be much more ambitious. Because in a way, everybody owned the decision, so you can't criticise for the decision that was taken. Another thing that the Scottish Government did, which was really important, was to engage with business, the NGO community, academia, um, to set those targets. So it wasn't just a case of us saying, we want to see you reach those targets and then step away you engaged with the people at the expertise of the academic community those who are campaigning for change in the international networks or the ngo community and the businesses who had to put their hands in their pockets to actually make an awful lot of it happen and scotland's now met those targets and what what that told me is that no political party and this is this is again the breadth of the yes movement and 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 i can and, and Roger, it's OK, I can touch on the diaspora stuff very briefly as well in a moment, but it, it, it reaches out. It, 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 this politics cannot be done just within a parliament. And that, and that was illustrated. What it also did, and this is really important for our foreign policy and how we reflect what's going on within, Michelle, as you say, to the outside world, is that in foreign policy, as and I argue a medium sized state, because about five and a half million people in European and global terms, that is medium sized not small um maybe my, one of my criticisms of nicholas sturgeon and alex Hammond over the years we're a medium-sized country um is that you can't do everything and that means you have to have a serious discussion about what's your niche what can you do what do you do more of but what do you do less of and i think that given our leadership with those targets the 42 percent and the global recognition that's had and the fact that civic society including business came with us on it and the fact that i I wrote the 100% target for renewables, working with Alex Hammond on that, which we just met as well in terms of the equivalent of 100% of our electricity coming from renewable sources. That means be ambitious, but, but be ambitious with everybody else and try and take people with you and identify what your niche is. And I think the areas I've identified in the book, like climate, like conflict, like a feminist foreign policy, Um, multilateralism are the areas where I think Scotland has a niche that being said there'll be those on this call who think that there are other areas where Scotland's got a niche and should be focusing its efforts and that's fine and this is all about opening this up thanks Michelle.
0: uh, before I move on to some of the questions that are already being posted I'd like to ask one of my own using the privilege of chairing this session this evening. And it's about, uh, you mentioned the word conflict. And as you know, Stephen, I've been involved in, and still involved in doing work in the humanitarian space, uh, following in the wake of conflicts. Could you say a little more about why you think that is an area that Scotland could have a purposeful role in?
1: Yeah. This is a really good one. So this is an area, Roger, I know how hard you've worked on this and in places like um, Iraq and Yemen and, and, and elsewhere. Um, and I know that some of our work before we were in politics kind of overlapped as well. Because I used to work not, not to the same extent as Roger, but, but I worked in international, for international NGOs and organisations as well. Now, um, there's a guy called, I'm going to, as well as Roger's work, um, I'm going to reference you to somebody called Mark Miller-Stewart, who runs an organization called Beyond Borders Scotland. Mark is a senior UN mediator, very senior You know, um, answers directly into the UN Secretary General's office. And I was actually, I met the UN Secretary General on a mission, was able to raise this with them. Um, so let me paraphrase Mark as a senior UN mediator, who incidentally, although he runs Beyond Borders and is a somebody who lives in Scotland and a Scot, um, he's, he's offered no opinion on the constitutional debate. But he does offer this opinion. Scotland needs to improve the debate around its foreign policy footprint because it's significant. One area is that of conflict, that Scotland is seen, rightly or wrongly, but it is seen as having an international profile, but one that is, that is a reasonably safe space. Now, over the years, um, I remember a few years ago, I was able to bring, um, along with Angus Robertson and others, Groups from the South Caucasus and the first time that the speakers of the Parliaments of Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia met was in Murray. Um, since then, the First Minister has done some really good work with Mark and at the UN on women peace, on, on peacemakers. And there's a fellowship that the Scottish Government helps fund that's brought women from Syria, Yemen, Ukraine and elsewhere to Scotland to give themselves a safe space for, for, for talking to each other. So I think we can cultivate this idea of us providing a safe space. Now, why can we do that and the UK can't? Um, There are a number of prerequisites for it. One is we have no ambition to be a nuclear armed member of the P5, um, of of the permanent members of the Security Council. The other is you you can't be involved in conflict resolution everywhere. You've got to have your areas of expertise in areas that feel comfortable coming to you as well. You can't always publicise it. And critically, and this is really important, you have to be open and honest and comfortable with your own history as well. You know, the fact that Scots played an active role in the colonies and independent Scotland was seeking colonies before it went into union, that there's wealth in Glasgow and elsewhere that was built on the back of slavery we have to acknowledge that in the same way that we have to acknowledge the stuff that went on domestically with the clearances and job losses and the demographic challenges that we've got at, at the moment. And Sabir Zazai gave me some really good stuff on this. So Sabir is the chief executive of the Scottish Refugee Council. He's an Afghan Scot. He fled the Taliban as a teenager, made Scotland his home. So he's seen it. He's seen the conflict. And he said a few things. You need to be open to the world. The refugees welcome stuff is not just about placards. That's an important message to send out to the world that you're willing to do your bit. But critically this, Roger, and I think this ties in, you have to be comfortable with who you are because in order to act as a host for these things, that's because people see who you are as a person, uh, sorry, as, 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 as a nation. Yeah. And he said, yeah. look, and, and, and Sabir said, when I walk around Glasgow or St Andrews or elsewhere, I see all your history. I see the good stuff and I see the not so good stuff. And he says, you can't deny the not so good stuff and, and, and just accept the good stuff because that's part of who you are. And if you're honest about who you are, then and only then can you be a hub and a comfortable member of the international community. And I thought that was really interesting as somebody who has made Scotland his home and has seen so much before.
0: I think what I'd like to do now is move on to some of the questions that are being posted. I want to start with this one. It's not the first one that's been asked, but I think this is a good opener from the audience. And it's from Adrian, yes, Glasgow and West. And he asked, what would be examples of early decisions that could affect Scotland for years? I think this was referring to your opening remarks, Stephen, when you said, you know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. So have you got any examples in mind of the types of things that we could do?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. So, Adrian, it's a really good question. And again, I'm saying this, I don't have all the answers. This is about opening up the debate, because by having a debate and discussion, you're prepared. Um, so I think, first of all, I'd actually go before day one of independence. Remember that there's a huge amount of international awareness of and interest in Scotland's constitutional debate. And I'll refer again to Mark Miller stewart One of the reasons that countries have become interested in us as a hub for conflict is that we've gone through this remarkable constitutional journey over the past 20 or 30 years in particular, whereby we've had a constitutional debate about whether or not Scotland should become independent, which people on both sides, remember, we have to remember, there are people who feel really passionately about remaining part of the UK, and people like us who feel very passionately about independence. And as a movement, we need to try and keep people with us as far as we can, even where they disagree. So how we conduct the debate becomes a really important part of that process, and that's an integral part of the journey. That means that when you, once you vote yes, how you've handled that journey and the fact that we've actually been able to get to the stage of a referendum without so much as a bloody nose is, is a massive achievement for the nation. Um, a massive achievement, we should never underestimate that and the power of that. And then for that transition period, I think we need to send out messages that we want to be a responsible member of the international community of nations. And that means good global citizenship. That means being open in terms of migration. I think others can disagree. I think it means being very clear that we see membership of the European Union as a normal part of that that one of the reasons for independence is a rejection of the isolationism of global Britain and the Brexit project. People see that, which is no disrespect to our neighbours south of the border who have made a different decision, but we've made different decisions. Different countries make different decisions. I think another message we have to send out is that the relationship between London and Brussels at the moment is broken. And that's a relationship between our most important bilateral relationship in London and our most important multilateral relationship in Brussels and I think we need to send a message out to the world that we want to be a bridge between them both that that, that we want this to be as smooth transition towards independence and it will be good for everybody in these islands Um, and I think that means that we need to show that we are generous in our independence regardless of what what happens we want to show we want to make our independence work for all of our neighbours as well and i think so i think even just talking about that so remember when people sometimes will turn on their telly on day 1 of independence and they'll hear whoever the first minister of the day is or the prime minister or whatever the sort of head of government will be called they will make a speech and what is contained within that speech will be an incredibly important message and i think it needs to be one of multilateralism of good neighborliness of openness and of being a good global citizen on issues like refugees, climate change, conflict, and a whole, re- re- um, and a whole host of other reasons that independence is about internationalism and openness.
0: Good, thanks, <laughs> I, w- I want to pick up on your reference to the EU uh, in that. And what I want to do is I want to raise it in the context of an early question that was posted by Mark McNaught, and he raises the issue of uh, EFTA membership, to get your views on it. As you probably know, Stephen, there are many different views possible on EFTA, but let me just characterise two that are currently doing the rounds. One is, some people are arguing that EFTA is a stepping stone to membership of the EU, but you will get others, and I think, if memory serves me, I think Kirsty Hughes is one, that points out EFTA wasn't designed as a stepping stone. EFTA is a body in its own right. And therefore, there are different views on the appropriateness of EFTA, and there are different views on how far EFTA actually is a, a, a way of moving gradually into the EU. What's your take on, on this debate?
1: So my my view is, and remember it's just one view, um, yeah is that independence has been driven by people who believe in Scottish membership of the European Union, that Brexit has delivered something which wasn't there in 2014, which is this. And and actually, I'll I'll say something else, which some might consider heresy. I don't like the term indirect to either, because this is a different referendum and a different set of circumstances from the one in September 2014, and and has been driven by different political forces. Um, And it's this. In 2014, we were doing something in many ways outside of the European norm, which was we were becoming independent from another member state. So it was like an EU member state was splitting up. The UK is now the one that stepped outside the European norm. And whereas to be an independent member state of the European Union, we can look to 27 other examples you can only look to one example of Brexit and the global Britain that is yet to be defined. So in many ways, and I don't want we're not boring and what we're not what what we're doing isn't boring by any means. But I think sometimes we need to remind people that what we're doing is pretty normal um, and straightforward. And that's changed things. The other thing is there were many, many, many flaws of Brexit. What was one of them? One of them was not to tell people really what they were voting for. And I remember sitting in, you know, and the reason why, and Michelle and, and Roger will both remember this, one of the reasons why um, Parliament at Westminster and governance at Westminster went into meltdown for four years was because nobody could agree what Brexit meant. Nobody could agree. We need to be clear about what independence means. The people of Scotland voted to remain in the EU. I hope they vote for independence. And therefore, for me, it's a logical step. And actually, in those early days, because you only get day one, I think we need to be working towards European Union membership as soon as possible. But here's the rub. And this is it. Now, I think that has to be day one. And we have a government at the moment. We'll see what happens in a few weeks' time. But we have a government that believes, believes in EU membership. And we have a population that seems to believe in EU membership. But here's the great thing about independence. If the people of Scotland change their minds which I don't think they will, but they might. I might be wrong. Then they can pursue EFTA membership or they can pursue sitting outside should they so wish because the decision will ultimately sit with the people of Scotland. But right now, I think they deserve the certainty of those of us who who believe in independence of saying, if you vote for independence, then this government that is delivering independence will negotiate accession to the EU member state as the people of Scotland have voted for at the earliest possible opportunity. And at the time, the people of Scotland can choose um, choose a different path. You can trigger Article 50 any time you like.
0: There are one or two people who have asked questions and, uh, with a particular interest in the diaspora. And obviously, myself and Michelle have had an interest in the diaspora. So I think it would be very useful given the interest of the audience here, if you said a bit more on how you view the diaspora, uh, how might we better engage with it? How big is it? How significant could it be? So over to you, Stephen.
1: So what I think I might do, if it's okay, and, and, and also I'm very nervous about talking about the diaspora when I know that Michelle and Roger and momentous change of putting a significant job of work to study this, but I'll, I'll give it a pop anyway. Um, I, want, I want to tackle just bit by bit. Um, I'm not going to say, I'm going to say something that I'm not sure if you'll be comfortable with or agree with, and I'm going to paraphrase. So Neil Asherson, the great author, um, said to me, politically, Scotland's diaspora is quite useless. And do you know what? Not only do I, I agree to a certain extent with Neil, But actually, I'm really comfortable with Scotland's diaspora being quite useless. And I'll tell you why. Decisions about Scotland's future and its politics should be made by people who live here. It's why I think that um, I've been hearing about extending the mandate for a vote on any future independence referendum to Scots who live outside of Scotland. That makes me feel really uncomfortable because then you're basing it on ethnicity rather than a civic identity. And it's why I think that the French or American or Dutch or Polish um, individuals, families who have decided, you know, who moved here six months ago and have decided to make that commitment to Scotland should have a vote. Whereas, say, somebody who's a Scot but lives in London or New York or elsewhere shouldn't. Now, being politically quite useless in terms of lobbying and debates is different from being entirely useless because there's plenty that you can do around this. Um, i've been really pleased to see that the scottish government trying to take lessons from ireland on, on the diaspora the irish take quite a light touch approach to the diaspora because one thing we've got to remember let's say the diaspora is about 70 million but some people put it anywhere between about anywhere between 50 and even up to 100 million i've seen but let's take 70 million that means that there are 14 scots by origin or by affinity living outside of scotland and, and in terms of scotland massive massive resource but it has to be light touch now if you're independent you have that embassy network that can act as an anchor for engagement with the diaspora bringing you commercial opportunities goodwill opportunities political clout, cultural exchange educational um, i think there's a lot we can learn in terms of some of the stuff that doesn't cost you very much money that the irish do the president of Ireland, for example, has a medal for the member of diaspora who's contributed most every year. Um, there's a fund for diaspora members who have who have found themselves in hardship. So, if you like, the island of Ireland doesn't leave you when you leave the island, um, and and your diaspora's success, be it in business, education, um, or other walks of life, is surely a reflection on the on the country of origin as well. So, I think there's things that we can do. Um, In the initial days after independence, I think it's really important to engage with the diaspora um, in the opening days, because a lot of people won't know who we are. And as somebody said to me, I think it was Jonathan Coren runs a big NGO, international NGO, and deals with governments around the world. And he said, foreign policy is all about making folk who've got very little experience of you think well of you. Well, your diaspora gives you a fantastic foot up. And also if there are areas where we lack expertise and input in different countries, you've got your diaspora. So we're not asking the diaspora to be involved or take a political view. But once you achieve independence, you have that fantastic resource at your fingertips. Um, Now, what should we be doing now? I think the diaspora is looking at how we conduct ourselves in this debate. That's important. They're watching. Um, And I think our message has to be one of internationalism, that what we're trying to do is one of normalcy and that we want to be a good global citizen. So I think these are things that could be really important in terms of how we interact with the diaspora. But I don't think we should be asking them to take a particular view on independence or not at the moment.
0: Okay, thanks, Stephen. What I'd like to do, since we're on the topic of diaspora, and you've mentioned myself and Michelle, is I'll ask Michelle to say something because our work in the diaspora has not actually been in the political space it's been more in the economic and business space so Michelle would you like to make a few comments?
2: Yeah and I'll make them very brief because I want everyone to have the chance to ask Stephen about his book. Um, I mean the report that we did uh, was pretty extensive and As I recall, it was over 1,067 contributions from 74 different countries. So Mm -hmm. I certainly think that it can be treated uh, with merit in terms of its content. If I were to highlight one takeout for me, it would be the fact that how strongly it came through how people perceive Scotland in the rest of the world now there was a number of different comments uh, about that you know we lack confidence uh, came through quite a lot but we have to work with what we've got and I would gently actually disagree with your view Stephen about how we can you thought somebody might how we can utilize the diaspora and the big takeout for me was the extent to which people saw scotland doing business with scotland because it was a business-based study that we were highly ethical and trusted to trade with and that scotland as a place or are doing business with scots was was secure and to me that is something in global brand terms in business that we can trade off And I think that was very important. And of course, if we remember back to the independence referendum of 2014, we were kind of told that, you know, RBS had done for us. That that was our global reputation ruined, despite the fact so much of the core operation of the likes of RBS has run out in the City of London, as you recall. But I thought that was a big takeout. And that was replicated in different geographical regions all around the world. So that was of interest. That's all I'd like to say about it.
0: OK, you thanks, read, Michelle. Read
2: our website.
0: <laughs> Attractively <laughs> priced, but free. <laughs> right. uh, Stephen, uh, I'd like to come to a question again about something that you've referenced, and that is the referendum and the way in which you see the next referendum. And this is a question which I, I think is probably in the mind of quite a few people, uh, and it's from uh, Murray Grant. If the UK government proves recalcitrant over a referendum, what can we do to gain international support and put pressure on Westminster?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Firstly, on diaspora, I'd encourage everybody to to read your um, your report, and I was I was really heartened with the number of people who engaged with you on that and also um, i've included reference from momentous change report from affinity scots so these are not scots who can trace any origin back but people who feel an affinity in one way or another sorry i, I just thought that, that 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 was worth mentioning and roger michelle will be far too modest to say but it's an outstanding report that i i drew from heavily and i hope they don't mind the fact that i did um on the question of the referendum this is a really difficult one let's not beat about the bush this is a really difficult one how we're seen by the international community is important. I wouldn't have written the book otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it is important. Um, I, and you also see the challenges that the Catalans had in terms of Spanish intransigence. Um, you also see the problems that Kosovo has had. You only 97 states in the world, even years after independence, um, recognize it as such and that causes significant problems um, interestingly I even I, was, um, I saw the other day that Kosovo played Spain in the football the other night and what I didn't realize was to the extent that in, on Spanish telly Hispania ESP was in capital letters whereas Kosovo KOS was in small letters because they were not recognized so um, so are really interesting things that, 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 that go on um, I, I think that the way we conduct ourselves over the first few months after this election, let's say the election goes the way that we many of us hope it will go, and let's say we've got a pro-independence majority in Parliament. I think you could be in danger of the British government trying to be seen to block that initially, which leads to really significant questions about democratic legitimacy of Westminster, you know, um, I think we have to be patient and we have to hold together. I think the divisions that you see, any divisions in the Yes movement will not benefit the Yes movement, can only benefit those who are opposed um, to independence. Um, I've got a few things that i put in the book that I think the Scottish government should be doing in terms of its engagement. I think that even though the Scottish government has limited resources, and let's not forget that this is hard, it doesn't have big resources, doesn't have a foreign office, There are things that you can do. I think you need to beef up Scotland House in Brussels, for example. Um, I think that needs to be beefed up. In fact, Norway's biggest um, representation outside Norway by far is Norway House. I don't think it's just a job for the Scottish government. I'd love to see businesses, universities, local authorities um, and, and others build that Scotland House model so you've got different Scottish stakeholders working together. I think the Scotland House model can work elsewhere. Um, in Copenhagen, I believe there's one that they're open to, to open up those links with, deepen the links with the Nordic states and the Baltic states. Um, I also think that our ministers, and it's difficult, look, I know it's difficult. Um, our ministers need to be travelling. I know that's hard because, you know, one of the things that I see sometimes is criticism of ministers for, Foreign jaunts, when sometimes a foreign jaunt is a day trip to Brussels, which believe you me is no jaunt, is exhausting but important. Um, and and I think as Anthony Salomon said to me, and he's he's, he's he does a lot of work for the Scottish Parliament, I've quoted him in the book. Um he's 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 a foreign policy analyst and he's astonished sometimes whereby people look at how much maybe a minister visiting Paris or Berlin or even Washington, D.C., how much the flight costs rather than the substance of what is actually being discussed. So I think that working and behaving in that foreign policy space is something that any future Scottish government needs to be much more comfortable doing. And it needs to be comfortable in foreign policy and international affairs. And its ministers need to be comfortable in that space, which to be fair is something that credit where credit's due. I think Mike Russell was very good at in the last parliament um so this won't be easy um but we need to maintain that legitimacy in the eyes of the world which i think may require a little
0: bit of patience i think it would be very helpful if the yes movement as a whole tried to put pressure uh, uh, on the scottish government and the like to be more outward looking to engage more and to counteract all this narrow sort of you're going in a jaunt type thing. I was When I was an MP for a short time, I was twice accused of going in a jaunt. Uh, the first time uh, was very bitter criticism I received because I had been, I believe, the only parliamentarian in the Western world to enter Mosul in northern Iraq during the fighting. And when I came back home on my political Facebook page, I was being attacked by a couple of local people for going on a jaunt to Mosul. Well, if you were going on a jaunt anywhere, it wouldn't be there in the middle of a conflict. The second time when I was accused of going on a jaunt was because I was invited to go to Geneva to address a meeting of the United Nations in Geneva, the Director of Generals Responsible for dealing with situations post-conflict. And again, although I thought that was a good thing for Scotland to be engaged in, when I came back, I was again being criticised for going on a jaunt to Geneva. So what I think we need to be is we need to be more encouraging of Scottish representatives and support them more when they're trying to engage with the international community in a purposeful way. It serves the cause of independence. It doesn't serve the cause of independence to want everybody to sit at home and do as little as possible to make the case for Scotland. I'd like to move on now to a question from Alison who helped organise this evening. Alison Graham, thanks for your help, Alison. And Alison asks a question about Scotland's USP and seeks a, your view, Stephen, particularly since you raised the issue of green energy and the way in which we've been so successful domestically. But could this be part of our USP internationally to have Scotland's name seem to be a leading proponent internationally and not merely domestically? What would your view be in that? Um,
1: yes, I think so My My view is yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, you need to have your unique selling points that Scotland exists in an international community of about 200 other um, states. Um, It's a competitive field, and if you're a medium-sized country, I think we we, we start from a position of advancement, which is people know Scotland. It has that international um, branding, that really important international branding that, you know, is far better, actually, even before independence and many independent states have got now the reason why i reference once again that day one of independence and figuring out why you know what your what your calling card is is what do you say to the world on day one you can't tell them everything you need to figure that out and i think if you go down the route of global citizenship and openness yes i think that being at the forefront of climate change is really important and you can lay groundwork down for that now. So, even though the UK government is trying to block the Scottish government from being active, I think that the opportunity of COP26 is massive. And what you do is you take a lesson. And I hope there's nobody from well, um, for those who are on the call just now from Glasgow, close your ears for a minute because what I'm going to say to you is you need to take a leaf out the book of Edinburgh. And the reason I use that, <laughs> and the reason I use that illustration is that. Um, The Edinburgh International Festival is a smaller bit of the Edinburgh festivals nowadays. You know, the formal festival, the fringe around it is now globally recognised and massive. So if you have COP26, and even if Boris Johnson continues to block Scottish government from going, then Glasgow City Council, our universities, our businesses can act as a showcase. And that provides us with a really good USP. We've already got some of it there. So, global citizenship, conflict resolution, multilateralism, and, and 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 pioneering and groundbreaking work on the climate emergency. I think they're all really important. But as as, as I say to the first years taking international relations, international relations is not merely done by governments speaking to governments. It's done by each and every one of us as individuals and by different organisations. And COP twenty six is a really good illustration, and and that's why I use the analogy of the. Fringe festival and the fringe that we have around that.
0: Yep, I I think a good point. I mean, just last week I was talking to the Scottish director of an organisation called World Skills and was suggesting that what they should do is use one of the Glasgow colleges as a base to run fringe type events. And, you know, there's absolutely no reason why the Yes Network shouldn't be thinking themselves about what kind of event would it be suitable for you to be engaged in and and to lay on come COP26. Let let me move on now to raise an area that I know creates a bit of a a conflict and differing views, and that's in relation to uh, Russia. Now, I've lost a note of who it was that asked this question, so I hope they'll forgive me. But basically, it was asking what your view is. And the person pointed out, you know, Scotland's got long historic links with Russia, although there are many people still seeing Russia as a bit of a bogeyman. But surely there would be something more constructive we could do about relations. What's your own view in the contemporary situation situation? and the possibilities of Scotland and Russia. So I
1: think you've got to distinguish in these things between the Russian state and its government in the Russia and Russia, its Russian people. Scotland does have long links, and I would encourage anybody to go and watch um, Hilly K or Brian Cox, who both gave me interviews for this book, programmes on Scotland's links to Russia. Um, and where we sit geographically means that we will always have an important relationship with Russia. So I think that can be cultivated. Um, Russians have got a big consulate in Edinburgh as well, recognising the importance. The one thing I'll say, though, is this, is on the other hand, we need to maintain that relationship with people of Russia. It's important that the um, cultural links are important. I remember when I went to Moscow last year, started last year for lockdown, and the British Council were doing a great job and were cultivating those, those links but I don't think anybody should be in any way blind to the autocracy of the Russian state administration and, and, the, and Vladimir Putin's regime. Now, I spent a lot of time working in the former Soviet Union. Vladimir Putin is somebody who thinks the fall of the former Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical mistake. He started a war in Ukraine. He started wars in Georgia. The Baltic states, who would be very close allies of us and who are watching what's going on, fear for their independence and their sovereignty every day. Estonia had a massive cyber attack on it. I've sat in rooms with human rights activists, with LGBT um, campaigners who still carried the black eyes from the beatings that they had from the police. I've sat in the room with lawyers who'd lost their livelihoods because they were calling for democracy and the rule of law. And the most upsetting meetings that I had, and these all had to be done privately, were with a group called Mothers of Russia. We didn't want to campaign for anything else, but all they wanted to know was what had happened to their teenage sons who'd been sent off to Putin's wars in Chechnya, Syria, and elsewhere. And so often would receive beatings from the police just for asking questions about what had happened to their children. So there are two different things. And I think we need to work with our European partners, yes to build cultural and other links with the people. That's a really important mm-hmm. soft thing, education, culture, all these links. they love Robert Burns. Um, and we have those historic links, but nobody should be blind to what the Russian state is capable of, and the fact that it's fallen out with its neighbors who became independent. And I was also in calls with um, some Belarus activists the other day, many of whom who I know who've studied in the UK studied in Scotland, love Scotland, have gone home and gone to jail for asking for democracy and being beaten in the streets, and that's a regime that's been propped up by the Russians. So, as, as, as I say in, in the book, we shouldn't be blind to other countries and what they can be capable of, and in the same way I criticise unionist politicians for not speaking out in terms of, say, Catalonia, where you had people going to the polls and being um, beaten for going to the polls, in Catalonia, so too should those in favour of independence not be blind to the beatings that ordinary Russians take from their state authorities on a daily basis. Um, and, and, and also the corruption there as as, as, as as well, and the inequality and the poverty that exists.
0: Thanks, Stephen. If I just pick up in the very last point you make about corruption and point this out to the audience, because we are moving towards the, the end, I'm going to have to wind this up soon. Michelle, by the way, sends her apologies. She's already had to leave. She's got something called campaigning to do. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, when you mentioned corruption, part of uh, another study that I did along with Michelle uh, some time ago, <clears throat> we we looked at Transparency International's annual production of its what it called its corruption index. And if you look Over quite a number of years, uh, uh, the top 10 least corrupt countries in the world tend to be countries of similar size to Scotland, not the big states in the world, so that the USA, the UK and the like don't feature amongst the top 10 least corrupt states. But your Denmark's do, your New Zealand's do your Finlands do, and that's where Scotland should be. So that part of what Scotland is about internationally, in my view, should be mirroring the drive against corruption and more openness and more attuned to human rights in the modern world. And I think uh, uh, some of that comes out very strongly in Stephen's book, Normally at this stage I would ask Michelle to sum up but given that she's not here I can't ask Michelle to say a few final words so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to land this on Stephen and say Stephen I hope you've enjoyed this evening with the the group. I know that I promised you it would be an hour and it's run over yet again but I'd like to invite you to give a uh, 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 a few parting remarks to the Yes Network that have come along this evening.
1: Uh, my, my parting remarks would just be this: would be first of all, thanks to everybody for coming along today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving up a bit of time and engaging with this. Um, my second remark would be this: I've 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 heard people remark before is this something that can wait till after independence for me this is integral to the independence debate about where we position ourselves into reaching out to our similar friends and neighbors um, elsewhere and that means that i think it's a debate and discussion that we have to have now and then the final thing will be in this book it's not got all the answers in it um, you will disagree with some aspects to it and that's fine this is about opening up the debate and thinking about it and what really astonished me has astonished me since I published the book and when I researched it is how many people are really thinking about debating and discussing this and it's great to, if, 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 if we're able to channel that that discussion because we are a, a where if you like a hinge of history just now a book chapter has ended with Brexit, and it's up to us what the next book chapter is going to be. And there I feel like you see very clear blue and white water between Westminster and Hollywood. And for me, this also becomes an integral part of how you persuade um, people who voted no last time to switch over to yes. And that has to be a big focus for us all. There's no point getting 45 percent all over again.
0: Thanks very much, Stephen. And I think with uh, those words that what we should be about is writing the next chapter in uh, Scotland's uh, progression towards being an independent international state is a good place to end this. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming along this evening. I hope you found it of interest. I hope you buy Stephen's book. And I promised, as I said to Andrew a little earlier, that uh, very soon I'll get back to the network and see what myself and Michelle can contribute towards the project that you're intending to undertake on the diaspora. And I wish you all well with that. Thanks very much, everybody, and good night.